continue our worship service this morning by looking to the scriptures. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to <clears throat> the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 51, and we're going to be studying 51 uh, through 52 this morning. Isaiah 51, 52. Before we look to the text, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself in, to us in this book, we ask as we open your book that you would fill us with your spirit, for your spirit is our teacher, your spirit is our guide, uh, your spirit does the work of convicting, and your, your spirit, Lord, ultimately gives us uh, understanding and cause, helps us to walk in obedience to your truths. Father, we pray that we would look to you as we study your word, that we understand the text, that we understand its meaning, and that we would understand its application for each of our lives here. We thank you for your word and pray that as it goes forth that you would cause it to not return void. Lord, your word goes forth with purpose, like a double-edged sword, living and active. Father, may you cause it to... Uh, to pierce into our souls and cause us to, uh, to, uh, to rightly worship you as we know more of you and your plan of salvation. Uh, we pray that you would continue to prepare our hearts as we look forward to the celebration of the birth of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, this, uh, this, uh, this church body whom together we worship you with. We ask that you would be glorified now through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Uh, hope you were here with us yesterday night. We had a wonderful time at our Christmas uh, Sunday service, and, or not Christmas uh, program, not Christmas Sunday service, I'm getting ahead of myself, Christmas program. It was a wonderful time of worship and praise, and I hope you were blessed. If you were blessed, definitely let some of those who served know. I think they, uh, they would appreciate that. This is the third Sunday of Advent, if you guys are keeping track of that. Uh, I know two weeks ago I kind of mentioned that we begin uh, officially, in much, much of Christendom, the Advent season began. And on this third Sunday, it's, uh, we look to Isaiah, Isaiah to prepare our hearts for the celebration of the coming of Christ. In uh, tradition, uh, the third Sunday of Advent has a theme. They all have a theme. And this theme is uh, the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord. And that's kind of cool. I think that's a great theme. I mean... Uh, uh, I think a natural response to the birth of Christ is that we should rejoice in the Lord, right? Uh, I think you should find, yeah, are you happy that Jesus is born? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that is exactly right. That's a good example. Thanks for the illustration. Our response to the birth of Christ ought to be one of rejoicing. I think that's just natural. Now, I know as many of us here are kind of reserved, you know, but even the reserved people are going to say, you know, I'm going to see a smile on your face. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to like, yeah, you know, <clears throat> yes. Um, a little grin, maybe. Uh, it ought to, the, the birth of Christ, especially the, when, as you think about Christmas, you think about uh, the significance of his uh, coming and his incarnation, it should bring a spring in our step. 
in our, in our daily, uh, uh, daily uh, activities. It should always uh, perhaps bring a, a melody to our, to our lips, a tune, you know, that we're always humming or singing. I'm, I'm sure you're, you're humming, singing Christmas uh, carols and Christmas songs at, at this time of season. Uh, maybe a, a twinkle of the eye as you kind of just look at, it, look at things differently. You say, oh, man, this, is, this day, this day, this full of days is a beautiful day. Why? Because Jesus Christ was born. You know, uh, you know, you might have a smile on your face or even a peace in your hearts because you know that Jesus Christ came um, as a little baby born to die uh, for our sins. And today's text uh, uh, is, can be of help in preparing our hearts to rightly respond to the birth of the Messiah. It, uh, it teaches us about how the people of God were called to respond to the news of uh, of the promise of salvation. And uh, just as a kind of brief review, I'll throw up a chart again for us. We are in that section of Isaiah, this latter part, that talks about God's comfort, God's comfort through the promise of salvation, the promise of, of deliverance uh, to the nation Israel. But it's uh, not just a salvation for Israel, though. It, we would learn, and we've been learning, that it's a salvation that would uh, go to the ends of the earth, that it would be, so, that he's not just a light to Israel, but he'll be a light to the nations. And we're in that section where uh, <clears throat> they are comforted, particularly through the promise of Israel's deliverer, the Messiah. In chapter 49, uh, we learn in the second servant song of Isaiah that he will not only save Israel, but he will be a light to the nations. Then in chapter 50, that we looked at last time, we learned in that third servant song that the Messiah would not turn back from his mission. That he, uh, why would he not turn Why would he be able to accomplish it? Because the Lord God would help him to accomplish it. At the end of chapter 50, verses 10 and 11, the exiles are basically called to make a choice. It's sort of kind of like the uh, Sermon on the Mount where Jesus at the end will call them and tell you there's two ways, two doors, two gates. You must choose which way. And that's what happens in verse uh, 10 and 11. There's, there's a choice. The exiles are called to choose who will be their light in the darkness. Who will they trust to save them? Will they trust in the servant to be their light? Or will they continue to trust in the lights of their own making? One would lead to salvation, the other to torment. Chapter 51, verse 1, through all the way to 52, verse 12, are a call to those who would choose salvation. If you are one who is choosing or has chosen salvation, this is a call for you in how you ought to respond to the promise of salvation. Uh, throughout these verses is this repeated phrase. You'll find it, awake, awake. And that's just not uh, a preacher preaching to the congregation to get them to wake up, you know, because um, I know, I see you, I see you out there. Awake, awake. It's only the intro, okay? <laughs> I, should, I should use them often. <laughs> it is a call to arise and respond. And that's what God wants his people to do, to awake, get up. Do something. Act. You, you don't wake someone up if you're not going to ask them to do anything, right? You let them sleep. Yeah, you know. But when you call someone to awake, you say, it's a call to action. And that's what we're going to find here, a call to action. Wake up from your slumber. Don't sleep. Salvation is made possible, made available through this Messiah, and his people are called to wake up and respond to this salvation. Now, uh, as we look to this, I pray that we would apply it and be it applied as people of God who have already understand the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ too, and that we would, as we as possible, we would respond in, in similar ways, in similar ways. So as an outline for us this morning, we're going to find a four-point outline. 
The Lord rouses those who pursue righteousness, those who seek God, those who pursue righteousness, to respond to the promise of salvation in four ways, in four ways. So we're going to look at these four ways um, in our time together. The first way to respond to the promise of salvation is to listen to the Lord, to listen to the Lord. And that's found in chapter 51, verses 1 through 8. God calls his people here to listen to his promise of salvation, listen to his words, listen to his truths. He calls them to listen not just once in this text, but three times. In verse 1, we're going to see, in verse 4, and verse 7. And in the verse 1, we see the beginning of, they're called to listen as he describes the beginning of his salvation. Verse 1 to 3, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness will, he will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of a melody. Uh, this call here is uh, addressed to those who pursue righteousness. So those who want to choose salvation, those who seek the Lord, those who want to f- find salvation in the Lord himself, their maker. These are people who want to pursue a right relationship with their creator. And so they are called to listen. And when they're called to listen to him, they're called, they, <clears throat> they are to, called to look first and foremost to their beginnings to the rock and quarry, kind of like, where did, you, where did you come from? What kind of rock were you hewn from? Um, well, they were, and for Israel, their beginnings were found in Mesopotamia, particularly in one man named Abraham, as we see in verse 2. And Abraham and Sarah, from that one couple, God created and multiplied and blessed this mighty nation. And you remember that we can, just Abraham Sarah is a, just a, uh, a, a symbol of, of just longing and waiting for a couple who's infertile for children and, and how uh, in all that struggle, God produced in them, through them, this mighty nation of Israel. And so all of Israel would have remembered this as God calls them, wake to, God calls them to listen to him and consider the beginning of his salvation of this nation, Israel. That from the very beginning, when he called Abraham and Sarah, he was already looking out for them. And he was working in the lives of the nation bringing them to become a great multitude. God reminds Israel that he called them when there was no nation. There was only just one. God's plan of salvation existed for the Israelites long before they were even a people or a nation. And so his presence at the very beginning of salvation ensures that he will comfort and save Israel. The term Zion is used here several times. It's really Zion is another term for Israel. Uh, sometimes a, a, technically a, a, another term for Jerusalem, but Jerusalem, Zion being capitals of the nation, really representative of the whole nation, that God will save the nation of Israel because he was there from the beginning. He had already determined to save in the days of Abraham and Sarah. We see he also calls them to listen as he describes the reach of his salvation, the reach of his salvation. In verses 4 to 6, so again, a call to listen. Pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. For a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near. 
My salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. God calls his people here in his nation to remember, to remember that when the Messiah comes, he will bring forth law and justice throughout the world. And that's what's going to be a major, uh, a major aspect of his kingdom in the world. There's a complete, there's, there are governments, but even in our, our governments, there's always imperfect justice, imperfect systems of rule. But when the Messiah comes, he will establish a kingdom that will be perfect, where justice will be established throughout the world, and everyone will realize that there is no injustice in his, in his reign. He will bring forth a law and a justice, a, a, basically a government, that will be throughout the world. It will extend far and wide. He will be a light of the peoples, the nations, his uh, righteousness and salvation, you notice that term righteousness, they're kind of used basically in parallel throughout this text. And they will reach the coastlands. Those are the faraway places. So God's righteousness or the, the Messiah's righteousness, the God, Messiah's salvation that comes through him is going to extend all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, not only will it ge- reach geographically around the world, but it will reach eternally far into the future. God says in verse 6, uh, to basically look at the sky and then look at the earth. So, you know, you can just imagine they're looking up at the sky right now as I'm doing, looking at the sky. Okay, yeah, it's still there. And then look at the earth. Okay, well, yeah, still here. You know, the sky and the earth are two things, two kind of uh, aspects of our world that are pretty, pretty much, in, in comparison to us, practically eternal, right? They're always there. You're never going to be wake up a day and say, oh, there's no sky or oh, there's no earth, right? Oh, they disappeared. No, the sky and the earth, God says, look at them. He says, they're going to fade away. They're going to pass away. They're going to wear out like a garment. You know, you get clothes. You know, I don't know why, man. Uh, our clothes just wears out over time, right? You get holes, start getting holes in them. Like, man, is there some moth in my house? What's going on? They just wear out, wear down. And then, especially children's clothes. Uh, and then you realize, i got to replace it. Just like our clothes needs replacing, so the sky and the earth are going to be replaced. They're going to wear out. But God says in contrast to that, in contrast to what we think is so eternal, the, the sky and the, and the earth, his salvation, his righteousness will never end. It will never wane. It will be forever. That's the reach, the extent of this salvation. In verse 78, he, as he calls us to listen, now listen to the security of God's salvation that he provides. Verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, A people whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at the revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, my salvation to all generations. God calls his people who know righteousness. Those who know have the law in their heart. Basically, these are people who's, he's talking about to the Israelites. These are people who know of his righteousness because it's been revealed in his law, which he gave to them, this nation. And he calls them, he calls them and says, don't be afraid of man. Don't be so, they have an insecurity. 
about their salvation. Even though God's promised it because they were held captive and imprisoned in the hands of Babylon, they were afraid of man. They were afraid of the Babylonian rulers. They didn't think that anyone or, any, or even God could deliver them from the, the mighty Babylonians. So how could God deliver them? And they had that fear. And very naturally, we, can, we, we understand this, you know, that the fear can be a hindrance to salvation. Sometimes, even though we know God offers, uh, offers uh, eternal life or offers salvation through faith in Jesus, we fear receiving. And some of you may be, maybe the, that are here, that are not yet believers in Christ, may be afraid because of how others will respond, how others will think of you. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that this man, God, came in, in his form of a baby without, without a man and woman together making that baby? A virgin birth? That's like Star Wars. You don't believe Star Wars, do you? You know, there are people who are going to challenge you and, and make you think, question, do you really believe those first 12 chapters in Genesis? Do you really believe that? Don't you know it's a myth? You know, and, it, and very naturally, we who live in a very uh, uh, educated society here in, in the city of San Francisco, we have a very uh, sense of, a strong sense of political correctness, and we all have our uh, strong uh, socio-political bubbles. It is hard. It's hard, I, and we should acknowledge that. It's hard to sometimes go against what uh, everybody else is saying. But in response to the fears that man has of people, God reminds man, uh, reminds his people of just the temporal nature of those that they actually fear. You're afraid of man. God says, do you know what man is? Do you know what man is? He says, they are just temporal. They're just here for a little while. They're like the garments in wool. They're just going to they're, they're wear out. Moths will eat them. But not I, says the Lord. Not God. He is eternal. His righteousness will be forever. His salvation is secure to all generations. He says, don't fear man. Fear God. Listen to him. When it comes to the promise of salvation, though God has made it abundantly clear in his word, for most people, I think for all of us, even when it was our turn, it always comes down whether you will simply choose to listen to him or not, whether you will believe him or not. If we do not listen to him, then we choose, we're really not choosing, it's not a choice between listening and not listening to him. It's really a choice of listening to him or listening to someone else. Because we're listening to his truths or we're listening to someone else's truths. Whether they're our own truths, the truths that of our own making, like this is how I think the world is, this is how I think about what happens after we die. This is what I think, or what I think people tell me what I think about how the world came about. So we're really choosing between whose truths do we listen to? Do we listen to God's truths? Or do we listen to his truth, to our own truths or man's truths? And when we say man's truths, in God's eyes, they're really just lies. There's a song that came, that came across um, I used to listen to it a, long t- a while ago by Casting Crowns, the, the Voice of Truth. You guys know that? Voice of Truth? Yeah, I'll sing it for you, but you wouldn't want me to do it again. And, but the words are, but the Voice of Truth tells me a different story. 
The voice of truth says, do not be afraid. The voice of truth says, this is for my glory. Out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. God's people are called to listen to him, to listen to the Lord, to choose to listen to his truths and not the truths of this world. So when it comes to the promise of salvation, whom are you listening to? May it be the voice of the Lord. There's a second response that we find in our text, a uh, second response in verse 9 to 16. Uh, this point and the next two points are each marked by that phrase, awake and awake, uh, a calling, an urgent call to action. Each point is going to be divided in two subsections, a call to action, so they're called to awake, so there's something to call to do, and then followed by a word of comfort that God gives them. So there's going to be a, a call to wake up, do this, and then each time God gives a word of comfort. So let's take a look then at point number two. What's the second response? So we can listen. We can, in the light of the promise of salvation, we choose to listen to God, listen to his truths. Secondly, we're called to respond to depend upon him, to trust in him, to, we can say, even believe upon the Lord. But to depend upon the Lord is what I chose in verse 9 to 16. Uh, verse, in verse 9 to 11, we see the call to awake, to awake and rely on the deliverer. Verse 9 to 11, let's like, take a look at this. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The right response to God's promises is to, we see here, to a, a prayerful reliance upon him for the fulfillment of it. It's interesting, this first response, call, this first command, awake, awake, is not, calling, is not a command for the people of God, but it's actually the people of God calling upon the Messiah. Awake, awake. They're calling upon their deliverer to awake and put on their strength and use the arm of the Lord, the might of God, to wake up and deliver them just as he has delivered them in the past. The believing remnant then really are, are called call upon the arm of God, that his, his might. They remember his power and how he delivered them from Egypt. Uh, that's, uh, and was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? That's, that's not Rahab uh, like the harlot, you know, that we, we think that we are more common. In earlier in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7, we covered it back then. It's an, it was a t common term in that day of a, of a, a, a reference to Egypt. It really uh, so it was a, um, a mythical creature that, that described Egypt, but just here, it's really a reference to Egypt, the nation, how God had delivered them long ago. He was, how he dried up the Red Sea, allowed the people to cross on, on dry land. And so in a similar way, God, there's a call now from the people of God for God to mightily deliver them in the present. They're, they respond by relying upon their deliverer to deliver them. They express confidence that because he's going to deliver, he's going to enable them to return just as he, they would cross the Red Sea back into the promised land. So they will return from their captivity back into the promised land. They will return to Zion and they're going to return with joy. So in response to this prayer, God then speaks comfort to Israel. He comforts Israel in verse 12 to 16. And, and he does so by the comfort of his power. So he comforts them with the assurance of his power. 
Verse 12, 16, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass? That you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. That you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? The exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. For I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. Verse 12 begins with a repetition of, that, of the first person pronouns, I, even I, 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 I'm literally saying, I, I am he who comforts you, emphasizing God's com- that it's God himself is comforting the people of God. This word, we see this word comfort is a consolation. He, he, he ministers to them, delivers them. This I is none other than the Lord your God, according to verse 15. And he's their maker, their creator. And he promises to comfort them. And since he promises to comfort them, in verse, according to verse 12, he really he challenged them. Asked them, so why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Don't be afraid of, them, of, of man. Again, he's referring to that same, their fear of man, their fear of those who held them in captivity. Man, in contrast to God, dies and withers like grass, verse 12. Man's fury cannot compare with the power and fury of God. Think of his creation power, that the, the power of his simply speaking and things, all this whole universe came into existence, verse 13. God says that he will ensure that the exiles are set free, that like prisoners they will be released. He is the one who has power to stir up the seas. Surely, surely he will protect them with his hand. And why will he do this? Because he says, you are my people. Because he has a covenant relation with them. They're his people. He's chosen them. He will, and because he's made the promise and chosen them, he will ensure to bring it to pass. And what we learn then really is that salvation, again, uh, from beginning to end is the Lord's work. It's by his might. And we as a people, when we, when we knowing that salvation is, is by the power of God, we need to learn to depend upon the Lord to bring our salvation to completion. Many times we make mistakes, even in the Christian life, we forget this. We believe that salvation is by the power of God, right? All of salvation by the power of God. Then is not every aspect, even uh, our, well, let's take a think about our glorification. Is that something that you can affect by yourself? No. That's right, God's going to affect that. We have to depend on, so then why is it in the middle when it comes to our sanctification, so many of us depend upon ourselves, that we think it depends upon ourselves to be, live more Christ-like, holy lives? That in this, that's also part of salvation that also depends upon the Lord. From beginning to end, our salvation depends upon him. And so even if for us, we need to depend upon the Lord. The people of God are called to depend upon him for the salvation that he promises from beginning to end. And by his power, he will bring it to pass. This leads us to a third response to God's promise of salvation. That's in verse 17 to 23 of chapter 51. And that is we are called to submit to the Lord. Submit to the Lord. Uh, we see the same structure here. A call to awake followed by a word of comfort. First of all, the call to awake. 
And the call to awake to do what? To first to recognize God's discipline. The call to awaken and recognize God's discipline. Verse 17 to 20. Rouse yourself. Rouse yourself. Uh, this is, by the way, that's the same verb as awake, awake. It, it's translated that way, I believe, in the King James Version, the NIV. Awake, awake. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne, nor is there one to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. These two things have befallen you. Who will mourn for you? The devastation and destruction, famine and sword, how shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street, like an antelope in a net, full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. So here we see this uh, reference here, this description here of God's wrath, God's judgment upon the nation Israel. But it begins with the, the command to awake, awake, or in the NAS as well as the ESV, it's translated, uh, rouse yourself or wake yourself, wake yourself. It's because in the, in the original Hebrew, it's, it's a different uh, a form. It takes a, a form that's more reflexive. That this is something that, that not someone else is going to do. They're going to wake you up. You know, you want me to wake you up? I can wake you up. But the, this is a command where you need to wake yourself up. It's as if like sometimes when you kind of, you sort of wake up. And then you're a little real groggy, and you, you know you want to hit the snooze button, just go back for another 15, but you got to get to work. you got to wake yourself up. you gotta, you got to slap yourself out and, and say, oh, man, pour water or whatever you need to do. You know, pinch yourself, get out of bed, get clothes, washed up, and get out. So this is called awake yourself, rouse yourself. It's a responsibility of Israel to rouse themselves, to recognize what God has already done. God's already done his discipline upon them. They need to recognize it for what it is. They need to recognize that in this case, God has disciplined the nation in his anger, and they have been the recipients of it. They shouldn't be under no, confu- no uh, confusion that, oh, we've been, uh, it's somebody else's fault that we're in captivity. They need to recognize that it's, it's our fault that we're in captivity. It's because of our sin that we've been sent into captivity by our God. God's wrath here is described with the imagery of a cup. And you can, you know, we can just immediately think about Jesus when he, said, when, when he talks about the, the cup that would pass away before him. There's a, there's a wrath, a judgment that comes with this imagery of drinking a cup. Israel, in fact, has drunk of God's wrath for over sin to its dregs. And I love that word, dregs. It's kind of cool. It's, it's like uh, dregs is basically the, the stuff at the very end that's just full of either sediment. So if, you, if you're a coffee drinker, you know what dregs are. This is, oh, that's how so you get the end when it's, all the grounds are left over because it's just poured over the, uh, the, uh, the filter or out of the filter. It's like, oh, you, you just don't drink that part. But same with wine or something. There was usually at the, at the part or at, at the bottom, it'd be like dirt sediment or things. You just wouldn't drink that part. You wouldn't want to. It's the worst part of the drink. They've drunken, they're drunk a drink of God's wrath to the, so that there's only just the worst part left. And God's wrath has left Israel completely helpless. They're helpless against God's wrath. They can do nothing against God's wrath. And that is often how God's discipline of his people works, isn't it? Sometimes you're brought to our knees, right? And you realize you get that helplessness, that sense of complete, utter inability to do anything about our situation. 
that may be God's discipline working in us to cause us to realize that all the, all the efforts that we've been trying to do it in our own way to, to try to maybe hide our sin, to work around our sin while we hold on to that, the, these dear uh, uh, desires and, and lusts of our hearts, God will discipline us. He'll bring us to the place where we realize we're helpless and he wants because he wants us to recognize that it's our sin that leads us to helplessness. Our sin we're helpless against. And instead of continuing our own ways, God wants, when he disciplines us this way, he wants us to wake up. Wake up and submit to his ways. Wake up and humble yourself. Be humbled by his discipline. Acknowledge that we are under God's judgment. Acknowledge that we need to turn back to him. That's the call to wake for God's people. They're to awaken and recognize God's discipline upon their lives for their sin. In verses 21 to 23 then, as they would do so, God offers them a word of comfort. A comfort of his mercy that comes from his mercy, that God offers mercy to his people. Verse 21, therefore, please, please hear this, you afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God who contends for his people. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You have even made your back like the ground, or like the street for those who walk over it. The Lord God speaks to those who are humbled by his discipline, and he comforts them by promising to take out of their hands the cup of wrath. They're, you remember we talked about the dregs? They had drunken the cup of wrath to the dregs, down to the dregs. So the dregs are what's left. The worst part of God's wrath is wrath. But God says, I'm going to take that cup away. You've learned your lesson. I'm going to take it away. He's, he takes the very last parts of the drinks away from them, the worst parts. And he promises that as they submit to him to spare them from the worst part of his wrath. Instead, he will give that cup, that wrath, to Israel's tormentors. <clears throat> when Israel submits to the Lord in this way, in response to his discipline, God promises that the discipline is over. He says, you will never drink it again. Unspoken here, but worth adding, is that for all of God's people, the infinite wrath of God, the, the dregs of God's wrath upon our sin could never be satisfied by the punishment of Israel's tormentors. How could finite man pay for the and appease the wrath of an infinite God who has been sinned against. An infinite wrath requires an infinite payment. Those of you who were last night, we, we kind of talked about that. See, only the Messiah could take the bitter cup of wrath and drink it all, dregs as well, for his people. Christ drank the dregs of God's wrath so that you could know God's mercy. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 39, pray, three times he prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came to drink the cup of wrath that was reserved for you and me. He drank it all so that you could experience God's mercy. 
as you submit to him. When you and I submit to God the Father, the cup of wrath is taken away from us. Doesn't mean that he doesn't discipline us. God disciplines us because he loves us like a father does. But the very, the very the punishment, the dregs of the wrath, the terrible wrath that we all deserve for our, punish, for our sins has been drunk by the Messiah, by Christ. And it's because Jesus submitted to the Father and drank the cup of wrath that you and I, when we submit to the Father, our cup of wrath is taken away. That's just about a beautiful picture of the gospel here. Chapter 52, as we move on, uh, begins with the repeated, awake, awake. And, <clears throat> and, and because of that, I want to include it. I believe it, just, it, can, it belongs with this, uh, this section in chapter 51. And we find a, a fourth and a final uh, response to the promise of God's salvation. It is, that is, we are to tell of the Lord. Tell about people of the Lord. Uh, the similar call is made in the very beginning, a call to awake. And then we find that in verse 1 to 6. And then we're called to awake to receive the Lord's redemption, to receive the Lord's redemption. Read verse 1 to 6. Uh, uh, it's a long section. But awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you'll be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. Again, God is addressing his nation. He's addressing Zion, Jerusalem, its capital. And they are to awaken themselves. And we see twice here this, this command to clothe yourself. Awake, awake, and then clothe yourself. Clothe yourself. They're to put on clothing. They're to put on their source of strength, that which gives them strength. They're to put on that which makes them beautiful. And that which gives them strength and that which makes them beautiful has been provided for them through the Lord, through the Messiah. That these are figuratively speaking of the Lord, the Messiah, and his redemption of them. They are to put on the garments of, his, of God's right provision of righteousness for them. They are to shake off the dust, the dirt. They are to rise up. and They are to take off their chains. For God would redeem them. He would deliver them from those who rule over them. Those who blaspheme God's name. And the one who would be in, in the very end, the one... Uh, and those, those nations, instead of those nations mocking the name of God, the very one whom they mock would then be in the midst of them. Verse 6 talks about, therefore in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. That is in Jerusalem, in Zion, will be the Messiah. And he will say, here I am. Those of you who have mocked me. He would be in the midst to rule and to reign over them. 
So Israel is called to, to receive this redemption, Lord, to clothe themselves in this provision of redemption. And in verse 7 to 12, there's the comfort then. God comforts Israel with the promise of his reign, the comfort of God's reign in verses 7 to 12. Uh, <clears throat> in verse 7, it's very familiar to us. It says, uh, as you'll read it, because we find it in the New Testament, but how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean, go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go as, go as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Um, these verses probably could be a sermon in themselves, but uh, um, in short, they are a description of, of the, the people of God coming to the recognition that their God reigns, that their God reigns over the world. He, is the, he's, his, <clears throat> he will, in the, future, in the future salvation of Israel, they will recognize God reigns. Even now, the nation of Israel has not come to this saving knowledge of the Lord. There's always a remnant, but as the nation as a whole has not yet. And, but one day, as we believe in the millennial kingdom, the Messiah will sit on the throne of David. He will rule over the world. He will establish his justice and peace. And from that throne, salvation will extend all the way to the ends of the earth. The message of salvation will begin from there, and it will, be, and it will extend to the to every corner of the world, it will be a message of good news, a message of peace, a message of happiness. That reminds me of many of our Christmas wishes, don't we? Right? That's, that's, it's because Christmas is a taste of this future reign of the Lord. And this good news is so good that it will be a message that God's people want to announce. They'll want to climb up to the mountaintops and shout it from there. You ever go to a mountain? You guys go hiking? You ever go to the top and just shout? Yeah, it's good, right? Feels good. You just want to shout what's on your heart, what's, what you feel. I love her, you know. <laughs> you know and, and then, like, you know, or whatever you want to shout. I love Jesus, okay. Our God reigns. Next, okay, next time, ETC, when you guys go, I could, if you all go up to the top and just shout that, okay. Everybody's going to look at you funny, but it'll feel cool, kind of cool. A little taste of the millennial kingdom. You're going to go on the mountaintops and shout that Jesus reigns, our God reigns. Anyways, it's a message that his people will shout joyfully together. And I, I hopefully, and this is where, because it's, this is a verse that's used in the New Testament, I really want to encourage us from this. I think this is the time of season when we, as we celebrate Christmas that we really should be eager to shout it from the mountaintops, to tell others, to bring the good news, this message of good news, this message of joy, this message of peace, this message of happiness to our world. And it's all because of the birth of Christ, the birth of Messiah. When he came, that was the fulfillment of these promises. It was that, that, the beginning of the fulfillment of these promises. I want to tell others about it. Romans 10, 14, 15, uh, Paul would quote this verse there. 
And he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? It's a great, great question. People will not call upon those whom they have not believed. And how will they believe in him who have they not heard? How is anyone ever going to believe if they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So they will not hear until unless someone goes and preaches to them the gospel. And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just said as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You know, you know, I was talking to youth right now. I'd say, time to check your feet, how they look. They're all kind of dirty, filthy, scabby. Some of you want to show people. Or are they beautiful feet? Are they feet that are eager to go and tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ? May we all have beautiful feet that go forth and eagerly to tell others with joyfulness of the peace and the hope and the life and the happiness that comes because Christ, our Savior, is born. <coughs> the end of this uh, chapter ends with verse 11, 11 to 12 of chapter, or, well, the Chapters end with these verses, but the end of our sermon ends with verse 11 to 12, chapter 52. And really there is just a, a final call, really back to the exiled Israelites, to depart, depart. Therefore, in response to all of what God has uh, told them to do, to, to listen to him, to awaken, awake, their response at the very end is to, for them is to, to leave, depart, depart. Leave Babylon as God gives them the opportunity they are to get out when, God, when Cyrus enables them, uh, makes that proclamation, so it enables them to return back to the promised land. And we see, we eventually see in history that a remnant, a faithful remnant do, 50,000 some go back, though the majority have not. These words would continue to apply into the future. One day when the Messiah comes back to reign, all Israel is going to hear these words anew. And they're going to be called to depart, depart, Leave from wherever you're at and go back to where the Lord is. And the Lord will be, they will know where to find him. He'll be seated on the throne of David in the heart of Jerusalem. And he'll say, here I am. And Israel will return to him. And that's just, we can count on that happening. And when you get, when we, when that time comes, we're going to see that it was, that God is faithful to fulfill his promises to, that he's made to his, his nation, his chosen people. Just as he's faithful to his promises to you and me, his people today the promise of salvation for you and me. If you're here and you, you've not received this promise of salvation, I pray that you would today. It's made for all. It's available for, for anyone here to believe because Christ came as a little baby to live a perfect righteous life, to live and then to die in your place and mine. He, to, who was the sinless son of God, took on our sins. And that you would, if any, there's ever a right time, there's ever a right time you're waiting for that time. You're going to those, like, well, I'm waiting for the right time. This is the right time. As we heard even last week, now is the day of favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is the right time to believe upon the Savior who died in your place for your sins. Will you do that as God calls you to? For the rest of us, we have many ways to respond. But I think the, most, the one that we can most eagerly do and joyfully do is to go to tell, tell others, tell of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our time together and thank you for your word. 
<clears throat> we thank you for how you not only call your people to listen to you, but you call us to awake, to awaken and to respond to your word. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be people who listen to your truths. And as we've heard it, that we would affirm that all that you say is true, that our world is understood by your truth and by your light. Father, that we would choose your truths above all the truths of this world. Father, that we would then be people who respond and awaken and respond to these truths. That if, first and foremost, if we have not yet already, that we would believe upon Christ. That we would put our faith in your provision for salvation, our, deli the, our deliverer, Jesus. And that we would depend upon him, rely upon his sacrifice. And that, Father, that we would be people then who also then <clears throat> eagerly go forth from here with that joy of knowing of our salvation to tell others of this good news of great joy, a joy that's not just for us, not just for Israel, but it's for all people. Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of many in our city, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools this season as you give us a courage to tell others. Help us not to be afraid of man. Help us to fear you and to love others as you have loved us, and especially because you loved us so much and gave us your son. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.